Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. You're listening to Theater and College Hoops. I'm Subi. Alongside me is The Shark. We're brought to you by Dash Radio and the Barnburner Podcast Network. Go subscribe on whichever device you use. I actually heard Josh Heitfeldt former forward from Gonzaga kind of reminded me a little bit of Kevin Pitznagel, maybe not necessarily with the game, but just the overall demeanor and look tall kind of stocky white guy with the goatee. That's pretty much all the comparison I have with Pitznagel and Heitfeld, but Josh Heitfeld, he subscribes. So you should as well check out the website at the barnburner.com. That's the dash barnburner.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at CBB theater. You should also follow me at Subi232 to find out where the feet is and make sure to follow the shark at the underscore shark underscore BB. Let's open the curtains. actually forgot to celebrate our 50th episode last episode can you wow. believe we've made it 50 episodes to think about how far we've come you know and this is probably good to talk about here today you know the, the announcement came out that barstool is worth like half a billion dollars at this point let's talk about how far titch has come and the 50 episodes were both in the same apartment Using this, we we upgraded our software a little bit about how we perform this show, and uh, you know, not much else has changed. We're both a little bit older. I've I've hit thirty. You're getting close to it. Still got that beautiful head of hair. I'll tell you that much. But not much else has changed. But we're on a path. You know, we're on a path here, Father. From I think that we've probably developed our game pretty well in the fifty episodes that we've been doing this. Well, so first of all. I'm in a different apartment. I would like to point that out since when we, we started this. In terms of getting older, yes, that's absolutely true. And I appreciate the compliment regarding my hair. But if we mesh those two together, actually, the, the other day, I found a gray hair in my widow's peak. That was one of the most depressing days of my entire life. 
I didn't even realize you had a widow's peak. That hairline does not look like it's receding at all. Well, for the listeners, a lot of you probably know Subi individually, but for those of you that listen to us that have just picked up uh, in our audience, and, I, you know, there's probably a couple. Every once in a while we show up in some random college basketball pundit or fans uh, Twitter or one of their tweets, and we say something funny, and then we got a follow out of it. I used to, you know, for me personally, I, I got 26 followers, followers, so I'm working on that, my militia right now loyal bunch but for you especially with the the, the theater account we're, we're trying to we're trying to tap into markets here tap into reservoirs for people that are care about this stuff in the same lens that we care about it which there definitely is you know every every fan base from duquesne to temple to portland state they got people that care about this stuff um and in the 50 episodes that we've been doing it you got a gray hair out of it but we've added a few fans along the way certainly have and I'm glad you brought up the valuation with Barstool at the top of this program here, because when I look at how the Barnburner Podcast Network is trending with fantastic podcasts related to the NBA, more specifically Memphis Grizzlies, listen to the Backdoor Cut Show. In addition to that, we have some great contributors. Josh North actually wrote a wonderful tribute to Kobe Bryant, and we'll be giving some thoughts on Kobe as well. Uh, in the can, another great uh, another great podcast that references and, and highlights movies. And hopefully the chief will get us on here relatively shortly before the Oscars. So we can discuss some of the film that we've been breaking down. But when you talk money and you talk valuation, we're able to see in anchor quick shout out to anchor that uh, basically hosts our, our podcast. We're able to see where we're at financially and monetarily based on the ads. And while we're not at half a billion, uh, we're at a whopping 73 bucks, which you know what? is more than where we were 50 episodes ago. Yeah, and you factor in some compounding interest, you know, throw a little bit of years on that. You, ne- you never know where we're going to be in 50 more episodes from here. So we're growing. We're definitely growing here, Father. You know who you remind me of just there? Who? This is going to be a deep cut to Hard Knocks, as a matter of fact. Okay. Or oh, Carl yeah. Nassib. That's right. Who, surprisingly, maybe we can... Uh, cross lanes here a little bit had a very nice year for uh tampa bay i'm pretty sure he's a captain on their defense which is eek cleveland probably could have used him huh no, probably not but I, I think that's more of a testament to todd bulls and the tampa bay buck defense cap captaining that guy yeah well i'd like to raise a toast to our 50th episode which we missed taylor not here he's enjoying the waste management open phoenix open right now so i mean a very very good reason to miss this show uh in addition to that i'd also like to raise a toast to myself sunday i will be coming off the edge hotter than nick bosa uh because the diet's up father have you played it out in your head yet what the routine is going to be on sunday i have Can, can you walk me through your day Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wake up. I actually might go out Saturday night to get some orange juice because I have nips left over from Christmas holiday gifts, exchanges, things like that. Mimosa time, time, baby. Mimosa time or screwdriver time. Not sure which, but wake up Sunday morning, either do that, maybe just crack a beer that I have. I got a few platinums in the fridge as a matter of fact, but what I'm going to do is I'm also going to play in the background uh, the Aerosmith song where he goes, I'm back in the saddle again. I'm also taking song requests. What time are you waking up? Can I ask that question? Is that too intrusive? 
No, I've been sleeping in a little bit more because you get much better sleep when you're not drunk slash honestly like when you're when you're not drinking and you pop a melatonin before you go to bed you're you're on the wave right there my friend that's that that is a fun night of sleep how, how was your dry january as a matter of fact you're done was, right yeah like three and a half weeks or so i had a friend's birthday party that i had to be at and you, you can't put yourself in a precarious situation like that you don't want to be the guy saying you know i'm just gonna have a regular tonic over here or just put a lime in that water you don't want to be that guy especially when like, like you're not at that point in your life um but not honestly people always say this when they're like oh i don't know if i'd ever be able to do that and you know i'm missing out on all this fun once you get three or so days in it kind of just the payoff in the morning is just so much better and the productivity that you can have the following day. That doesn't necessarily apply to me. I never get hungover. I don't feel hangovers. That's been, that's always been the case with me. Don't get hungover at all. Bounce back like a freaking jackrabbit the next day, no matter what. Uh, but once you get, I notice it more in like working out, like I'm, I'm out, I'll be out there every day, rain, snow, cold, at least 20 minutes of a good run. doesn't matter if it's on a treadmill, out, out in the field, at least 20. So you're doing a little more than that. And I notice the, the difference in that aspect of my life. Well, there's no, there's no denying that productivity levels are through the roof when you're not hungover, right? I mean, as, as opposed to ordering Uber Eats and a Jersey Mike sub, I'm going to Target to get some toilet paper, get some essentials around the house. That's, that's obviously a, a great byproduct of what we're doing. And it's not just productivity and like what you're trying to do throughout your day. It's a, a general, more of a pleasantness about you. Like you, en- you enjoy attacking these menial tasks that you wouldn't necessarily want to do, even if it's in your workplace, responding to an email, all these sort of things. Like you're just not pissed off and wondering with a latent sense of frustration about everything that you're doing. Well, it gives you something to do also, because when you're not drinking, or eating shitty food. Those are pretty much the two cruxes of a good social event. Exactly. So when you abstain from those social events because you want to refrain from temptation, you kind of become a hermit. And it's a very nice on the wallet, let me tell you. And, and planning for a wedding, as you and I both are aware, it can be helpful. But doing those menial tasks, you're like, great, I have a reason to get out of the house. I have a reason to you know, burn a yeah. little coal in the engine. Uh, and we got to look at the opposite side of this as well. It's not all freaking daisies and roses out here. Like there's so many random Tuesday and Wednesday and Monday nights where you're just sitting there or Thursday nights or even, you know, getting into the weekends, it's even tougher where you just, you're so bored and you're watching the bachelor and you're like, Oh my God, why am I doing this sober? Or I'm, I'm I've been watching all these other just, not entertained as much as I'd want to be watching game college games on Saturday nights. You go to the movies and going out to dinner. You're just a loser pretty much. Yeah, exactly. But again, it's kind of nice to have this excuse to say no. I'm terrible at saying no when invited to social events. Right. I, I look up excuses to get out of social events, but now I'm able to just say, well, we're doing this for 30 days. We're not going to be fun. So don't invite me and, until Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday, though, tops coming off. Yeah, like let's get Patrick let's get back Mahomes. to let's get back <laughs> to the itinerary. Oh yeah, true. Okay. All right, so we we got Aerosmith playing. We're waking up, sleeping in a little bit, getting that fresh sleep. You're getting a little screwdriver, maybe a mimosa, depending on how you're feeling. What are we doing next? 
Because you got to adjust. You, you're a West Coast guy. You're adjusting to a Super Bowl starting at five o'clock p.m. It's welcome crazy. To the, welcome to the real world over here, my friend. You got to get used to this. It's in, I, this is the first Super Bowl that's going to be post like four or three p.m. in about ten or twelve, ten or eleven years. So you're right. I do maybe I have to pace myself just a little bit. But uh, going back to that Aerosmith song, I'm actually going to send a douchebag snap to you guys just to try and get some laughs, set the tone for Sunday. And then I don't know what what after. I might just nurse some beers at the house, and then we're going to go to our friend's place, uh, probably eat some pigs in a blanket, some buffalo chicken dip. Might have to make a stop at Jewel Osco, get some supplies for for his party. But it's going to be nice to not only be catered on, because we've I actually haven't. Uh, Rachel's been making all the food, bless her. But it's going to be nice to just be catered and also eat junk food and, and drink beers. Are you guys ordering out? No, I, I don't think so, at least. We might. You yeah. could always do a hodgepodge, right? Order some pizza, but also make some make some homemade stuff. How many people are going to be at this event? I don't know. That's another great thing. I, I love not having to plan anything. I'm just going to show up. I, one thing with Super Bowl parties that you got to be aware of, there, there's going to be two clicks in that group. There's going to be the people that want to watch the commercials and people that don't want to watch the commercials. And they're going to be factions feuding all evening. So you got to figure out which camp you're going to be in, and you got to be a leader in that camp. All right, I don't want you falling in and being and being pissed off at the other side. Firmly in the camp of wanting to watch the commercials. Theater. I love the commercials. So do I. I. As a matter of fact, I'm already excited for Monday's BuzzFeed compilation of the best Super Bowl commercials because you know that shit's going to come out. You're right. It's going to be a tough Monday, though. I already know brutal Monday. It always That's why for everyone listening, get out there and chop wood these uh, Thursday, Friday, get out there and chop a little bit extra wood that you, you you're not going to leave it in, into the weekend. So when you roll into the office on Monday, you don't have any pressing needs right there. Think Super ahead. Bowl Sunday. Yeah. Uh, crippling Monday. Super Bowl Sunday followed by crippling Monday, but that's in a few days. That's for the future. Let's talk a little bit of college hoops. We've been off for a week and the first thing that came to mind that you wanted to discuss. And again, we've been much maligned here as a program in not talking or covering a 10 hoops, but Rhode Island on a seven or eight game winning streak. Were you able to fact check that for me? Uh, I got Rhodey two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven game winning streak. Seven-game winning streak for the Rams, who will be hosting VCU, I think, here in the next couple days. Uh, They've kind of been laying in the weeds there in the A-10. Obviously, everyone's been discussing Obi Toppin and Dayton. VCU was a hot trend earlier in the year. They've stumbled a little bit. Richmond as well. Although, VCU, I cannot tell you how much I love Santos Silva. That is an absolute bell cow right there. But VCU... uh, and Dayton, Dayton really t- hogging all the A-10 headlines as well. They should top five team. Uh, and then Richmond, there was a little bit of a discussion there. But Rhode Island and David Cox are, are on a roll right now. And th- like I said, they got a huge tilt against VCU uh, in the Ryan Center here coming up. Are you surprised at all here with Rhodey's resurgence during the middle of the year? Somewhat. I didn't expect them to be in Joey Brackett's conversation on January 29th of 2020. I didn't expect that. Other people probably did. Uh, I, did. I also didn't expect Dayton to be as good as they are. Um, and frankly, the A-10 to just be 
pretty solid. But Rody's in that conversation. As of the recording of this episode, uh, they are one of the first four out for Joey Brackets. And when you're on that lane, that, that line right now, you need a big win. And this would be a big win. Rody's resume at this point, they, they've beaten Dayton at home, the Ryan Center. Tough place to play. Uh, they need this one, too, because if they don't have it, then they're going to hit their sixth loss. And there's really not a lot of resume wins on there, especially in the non-conference. So you got to play this out. you got to almost reverse engineer it when Rody's going to be compared to other schools on Selection Sunday. And if Rody has seven, eight, nine losses with their best win being an in-conference one against Dayton, they might not get in because they haven't beaten you know, an SEC team on the bubble or they haven't beaten a Big Ten team on the bubble, which is the entire conference. The, the Brackets has 12 teams from the Big, N, Big Ten on the bubble at this point. So the bubble's weak, no doubt about it. It's vulnerable. It's just you got you to gotta give – the committee, the ammunition to advocate for you. And if you're Rody, these are your opportunities. VCU's not that great, right? You should, I don't know, I would imagine Rhode Island's favored in that game. You should win that game. And if you do win that game, you're going to be more comfortably in this position. And as long as you keep those losses, I would say under nine, I think you're going to be dancing, even as an at-large. Well, I think Rhode Island is in a small section of teams, and they have them every single year. This might just be the definition of a bubble team. Feel free to keep me honest. But they're a small section of a team where they can have those, let's say, eight losses. But because of this seven-game win streak, they can say to themselves, come 8-10 tournament time, look, if we rattle off four straight, get to the title game or something like that, I think they're in pretty good shape to get an NCAA tournament bid. So I think they're in a good spot right now. Definitely considering what they were in the offseason and what the outlook for the season was, they, like you said, I agree that they need to limit their losses. But even if they do get to the eight loss mark, I think that they're, they have the confidence that it's not like they have to 100% win the A-10 tournament. I think they're one of the teams where if they get to eight losses and make noise in the A-10 tournament, semifinal, final, it's going to be a nail biter for David Cox and his boys on selection Sunday when Gumble, that beautiful, beautiful face, seven weeks away until the holy day. But that's where I see Rhode Island right now. And like I said, it's in a far better space than where they were in the beginning of the season and everyone's thoughts for them in the beginning of the season. They should be in the position where they should, they're, they're going to make noise in the A 10, though, because there's really arguably only one team better than them in the A-10. So they should be going to that Final Four in conference. And I, I used a comparison, you know, that SEC teams that are on the bubble. Rhode Island's actually beaten Alabama, who's also going to be on the bubble. But there's other teams out there. There's the Mississippi States. There's the Xavier's in the Big East, which has been a tough conference. They're, they're, they're in competition to separate themselves from power conference schools that are going to have more opportunities for bigger wins than them. So Rhodey needs to hit this one. And I think the bigger conversation surrounding our surprise here is that when Danny Hurley left, I don't think any of us would have thought that Rhode Island would keep themselves in the conversation. Uh, and that's a tribute to uh, this Cox guy and Fats Russell and, you know, Doughton and Cyrus and Landavine and all those guys that they're, they're keeping them in the conversation. 
Yeah. And to, to your point real quick about Rhode Island and their, where they're placed in the A-10, I'm essentially just saying I don't think that they need to feel the pressure yet of, let's say, winning out or winning a crazy percentage of their games. I think they're in a very good spot in terms of how they're playing. Obviously, they're on a seven-game winning streak. But in addition to that, there's not a shitload of pressure on them just yet. Now, you brought up the coaching matchup between David Cox and obviously Danny Hurley, who took Rhode Island to the tournament, who had them beat Oklahoma and Trey Young in the first round of that tournament. And now he's over at UConn. And we all knew it was a a rebuilding process over at UConn, but it seems as if there's still a little bit of stagnation. I think uh, the Husky fans and the faithful were kind of looking if you look at their record right now UConn's record right now this looks like a record that would be perfectly acceptable and understandable in year one of the Hurley era Uh, not where he is today I think they have eight or nine losses already and we've had our critiques about Altery Gilbert and their roster and I guess Hurley still needs to get his guys in but if you're a Rhode Island fan in the in the interim right now you kind of got to be loving this this trade-off because you thought when you bring in Cox and Hurley leaves that Hurley in a couple of years is going to resurrect UConn and Rhode Island might kind of fade back into the abyss of irrelevancy. It's not necessarily the case. I, you're right. I, I, when I look at UConn, first of all, they've lost five straight. The first on that stretch was the game against Wichita state that we first started talking about at Gilbert. And I, I wanted to point this out. The game he had played against Houston, uh, I think it was last week, might have been the worst performance I've ever seen. He, had, he was like one for eight on free throws, had six turnovers. And, and it, it, like they were in that game. You're, you're, the, you're the point guard. You should be the guy that's leading the charge here. And he just completely fails his team. When it comes to why hasn't Hurley reinvigorated it quicker? I, I don't know. The talent is there. The conference isn't that great. And you're one in five in that conference. And so, go to a better conference next year. Yeah. So it's only going to get more difficult, um, which uh, couldn't happen to a better guy if, if you ask the, the right people. Uh, I'm saying that in jest. I, I've always liked him. I, I think he's the kind of coach that you want in your corner in critical games and tournaments, whether it's conference or uh, uh, March Madness. But it's not, it's not clicking right now. And if I may, I want to say one other thing about kind of roadie and um, non-Power 5 conference at-large bubble teams. Uh, Because this this kind of goes overlooked each year. But these teams, they need to insert themselves in the last four in, first four out conversation well in advance of their conference tournament. They can't emerge into the bubble based off of their performance in that conference tournament, because you're going to look at them and you're going to say, how the hell did this team sneak into it? Um, You you take for like Tulsa when they made it relatively recently, they can't just pop up in the conversation on the Thursday of the week of the Jerome. That that can't be the first time it happens. They can't pop up because power five teams fell off the bubble. They need to put themselves on that bubble beforehand so that they're, what they do in the conference is more noticeable. They're already in the conversation before the tournament happens. So th- that's why these games are big. And I, I do consider the American, I consider that that conference is uh, that type of conference as well. So like Memphis, Memphis is 
if you ask the random walking the person walking down the street, they're probably going to say, this. "Yeah, they're <laughs> nice, blue shoes." You know that um, they're probably going to think Memphis is on the bubble, but Memphis is kind of falling apart right now. Memphis needs to put themselves back into that conversation. The reason people think they're in is because the conversation swirled about them what they're ranked earlier in the year. Yeah, and if, are, are you was that in reference? I know you just talked about Memphis, but was that in reference to UConn because they're not making the tournament? I don't. I mean, I don't know what else I can say about UConn. From like, they're terrible. I yeah. pronounced them. I pronounced them done after that Wichita State. They weren't even in at any point. So that I'm fine. I'm struggling to find words to say about UConn, and it's unfortunate to see you. Probably the the jewel of Northeast basketball when you compare it, maybe Syracuse, but Syracuse isn't close enough to a big city. Yeah. I mean, since we're giving out toasts and saludes, I'll give one to Rhode Island because this is probably about as good as you can have it right now with what has transpired over the past few years uh, at the at the coaching ranks with obviously Hurley leaving and now bringing in David Cox. And you know what? You're right. Give a hug to David Cox because he was – I mean, he was assistant and I feel like a lot of roadie fans are like, yeah, I was behind this hire because he's been on the bench. He knows the program. But I feel like a lot of casual observers and those that aren't necessarily fans, i.e. you and me, may have been like, well, I don't know necessarily about this hire. But rattling off seven straight games in what's supposed to be somewhat of a rebuild year is nothing short of very impressive. And like I said, I'm, I'm excited to see where Rhode Island goes from here. I'm excited to see because they're a dangerous team. They are a very dangerous team come A-10 tournament time. And I've always argued that I'm not going to go so crazy as to say that the conference tournaments are better than the NCAA tournament. Simply not true. But I will say, I I will say though, that conference tournaments are criminally underrated in terms of upsets and in terms of insane games. There's always one really good or powerful team that's, that's picked to win the conference tournament that gets nipped off maybe in the semifinals or the first round after they have played an excruciating schedule. They've won a million games. I I really would not be terribly surprised if in the conference tournament, a 10 roadie knocks off a Dayton or something like that. They already did it once. And David Cox, the guy is irrelevant. It's no fault to him. He's doing a great job coaching his team, but the, the fact is nobody is talking about Rhode Island and you and I we're sitting here. I'm looking at our little ticker right here for anyone that's been criticizing us about how much time we spent on the A-10. That's about, I think we're running around like 14 minutes of A-10 talk right here. So that's not bad. But when I Google search David Cox, you want to know what I see? First thing that pops up is a mathematician named a statistician named David Cox. Then I'm seeing reports of a masseuse named David Cox. Then I got a, a guy that was a union president that was accused of sexual harassment named David Cox. I haven't seen any David Cox that is coaching URI basketball on the first page of searching uh, David Cox. Can I tell you something without you getting mad, though? What? You've said it twice now, and I, I, I was giving you an opportunity to redeem yourself without me correcting, but Dayton has not lost to URI. Their only two losses are to Colorado and Kansas. Is that, oh my God, is that the second time I've done this where I've mistaken Dayton for uh, Davidson? I think it is. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> I've done that's that. All right. I'm, that's all right. It's my curse. You know, it's one of my bugaboos. I, whenever I see the DA, I don't, and then the V and the Y, it's like it's too close for me right there. I automatically jump to a conclusion. 
primary red color as well. Look, I don't, it's all right. It's all right. Pick mm. yourself up, pick yourself up. But uh, I, I just wouldn't be surprised. And we're going to see it in a few other conferences as well, where a random team knocks off the top dog. So watch out for this roadie team. So we'll, we'll end a 10 and roadie talk on this. Do you think that come Gumbel's day, the Holy day selection Sunday that we're going to hear Rhode Island's name? Yes. Bad bubble this year. I'm leaning towards yes as well. I'll stamp yes. I, I think Rhode Island's going to get one signature win here in the regular season. I think they're going to go to conference play with – I think they're going to go to conference play with eight losses, and then they're going to make a run in, in the conference. I think they get to the semifinals of the conference tournament. And that's enough to push them in. Yeah, it, it, assuming they win – this weekend they got David I'm doing the, like I the icons and the logos and the Y and the V are way too close. They got Dayton twice, once on the road, once at home, obviously. And then they have to go to Davidson <laughs> at point of the, at some other point. So I think they get in split one with split one with Dayton. If you can win the wins you're supposed to, you can drop a couple here or there. If you need to maybe drop one or two on the road at Davidson, you can take that one going to UMass when you're looking ahead to the tournament, the final game of the year or whatever, take that one. Uh, and I think you're, you might have an opportunity still. Fact like I said, keep it under nine losses. If you keep it under nine losses, I think we're dancing. Fact that we're talking about this in late January is still pretty impressive for Cox and the Rams. And, like we said, UConn's done. So quite a trade-off for the boys in Kingston. Can we talk about real teams now? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So let's segue. Nice nice segue. Nice segue. Uh, the past two weeks for Butler and Auburn have been kind of rough. Auburn was ranked top five about two weeks ago, and then they a lot of people will say, well, they then started playing teams with a pulse, and they lost a couple, and they dropped all the way to 16. Butler the same way. They were a top five team. I saw them at Wintrust Arena against DePaul and got smoked. So the past two weeks have been kind of rough on Butler and Auburn, who were previously top three, top five teams ranked. But the other night they had great comebacks on the road in conference, of course. So Butler, uh, who did they come back against? Georgetown in D.C. and then Auburn. Wacky game in Oxford, Mississippi. They came back and beat Ole Miss. I think if I were to choose who I'm more confident right now in between these two teams, I would actually lean towards Butler because some of their, some of their games, uh, the opponents that they're playing, the quality of opponent, I think those are tournament teams or at least French tournament teams. DePaul is a French tournament team. Georgetown, maybe not, but they still have the talent. Auburn is in dog fights, double overtime dog fights with Ole Miss who doesn't have the, the, the star power. I say collegiate star power in Isaac Okoro or Samir Dowdy or a coach like Bruce Pearl. So that was a little bit concerning with Auburn. Nonetheless, those are huge wins at this juncture of the season uh, because both of those, both the Butler and Auburn, they're going to get in the tournament. Now it's a matter of seeding. Now it's a matter of, you know, when you're picking them for, for a tournament run, how are they going to stack up? Can they get nipped by an underdog team? And I think Auburn right now is a little bit more susceptible to that. I think there are too, and nobody nobody thought Auburn was going to be uh, what they were at least when they jumped out to being the highest their rank was probably five. Is that right? I, some, yeah, yeah. I think like I think there were five, but you're right. And last night, Tuesday night, they both tipped off at nine p.m. It's tough for anyone to be staying up watching that. I can't believe Georgetown 
had a game at 9 p.m. in D.C. Like nobody would be going to that game, especially when it's being played off campus. So, uh, Pat Ewing can't be too thrilled with the schedule on that one. But in terms of whether or not I'm impressed versus both those comebacks, and those both are could be catapulting comebacks for teams that were just really in a rut. Um, I Frankly, I was shocked that Butler was able to completely take control of that game. And the reason I'm hedging towards Butler being the more dangerous one here is just strictly because of their, their pedigree. Um, their two best players, without a doubt, this year are Kamar Baldwin and Sean McDermott. Both those guys, Butler didn't make the tournament last year, but they were both on that team two years ago when they kind of backdoored their way into the tournament. And I think they played a very good Purdue team with the Vince Edwards, Carson Edwards, and pretty much all just a really good Purdue team. And they almost won despite having double digit losses throughout the year. So this is a tournament tested team. This is a team with their best players are uh, experienced upperclassmen. And I think they, in, in a, a January rut like they had, is not going to be something that's going to nosedive them going into March. And this could be something where they're, they're kind of right in the course at this point. Yeah. This is a good time to get it right because it's kind of the dog days of a, of a collegiate season is middle of January, right? You're not necessarily in the first half of the season. You're not eyeing for the big East tournament or the NCAA tournament just yet. Those is kind of the, the middle of the pack right there. So it's, it's kind of understandable for, for kids. I'm going to sound like Calipari right now for kids to kind of lose focus a little bit, but that is a, I mean, th- these are critical wins, not only for seating, but to avoid a complete tailspin because when you lose winnable games on the horizon are games that you've scheduled preseason that are going to be difficult and, and tough to play, right? As, uh, as an Arizona fan, right? I'm looking at their schedule and I'm like, ah, St. John's is fine. ASU is fine. You drop those games and then you got to turn around and potentially, and then in a couple of weeks, you got Oregon, right? And so those are, those aren't games that are given to you. And so when you lose those, these very winnable games, and anything can happen in conference play, but when you lose these variable, very winnable games, uh, and, and you're like getting smoked like Butler and Auburn were, that's how kind of you go into a tailspin. So winning those games and avoiding that tailspin is crucial. Absolute morale boosters too. It's like knowing that you're a good jump shooter for anyone that plays pickup ball, knowing that you're a good jump shooter, and then you go just go on this run of missing like 10 straight jumpers and you're playing in a league and then finally you get one or two to go down. All it takes is that it improves the morale, you get back on the horse, and you're, you write the ship from there. A lot, a I, lot of cliches right there. Yeah. <laughs> Sound like a coach. So one other thing I want to talk about, that Auburn Ole Miss game, some of the dumbest basketball I've ever seen played in crunch time minutes. I mean, Auburn was Auburn was up two with 18 seconds left, and Ole Miss had the ball, and they fell. Before that, Ole Miss was down three, and there's a minute left, so you play it out, obviously. Nope, they decide to foul. Give them a give them an advantage there as well. It was it was so bad. And then in I think overtime, Ole Miss had the ball underneath their own hoop, and there was about two seconds left. Game's tied. They throw it, and it goes out of bounds, or it was supposed to go out of bounds. Auburn decides to to save it from going out of bounds. Call a timeout. So instead of getting the ball underneath uh, their attacking hoop, they have to heave a half court shot. Quite literally, some of the worst terrible basketball uh, I've ever seen. Just just terrible, just to quote uh, Stan Andersky. 
don't expect that from two good coaches and Kermit Davis and Bruce Pearl either. But kids, man, kids, kids. Rick Barnes, let's stay in the SEC. Your boy. Well, actually, first of all, before we get to Rick, you a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was just last week, you declared BC basketball dead. Still on the same with Tennessee this year. I just did. I pronounced them dead last evening. Uh, you lose. You lose to A and M, who is just horrible this year. I mean, they're not a very good team. Buzz Williams would be the first one to tell you that they're terrible. Um, and just a completely flat performance. Tennessee was on the bubble. They're still on the bubble, shockingly. Um, but they've their struggle to score points throughout the year is not uh, is not a secret. You know, most of their points have come from the free throw line in games that they've won. Kind of a shocking free throw percentage in terms of their efficiency on offense. In this game, they were just so outmanned. They were out-rebounded by almost 25 rebounds in the game, which is outrageous. A&M had this guy, his name is forgetting me, he played like five minutes throughout the year. And at one point, he had about four straight offensive rebounds in one possession over John Fulkerson. Now, Fulkerson, it's hard to criticize him. He's been probably our best player this year. And when you're Tennessee, you should never have John Fulkerson being your best player this year. That's more of a testament to Josiah James and um, Jordan Bowden not having very successful years and lo- losing Lamonte Turner. But this guy on AM, and I'm, I'm going to pull his name up in a minute, forgive me for missing it. He was just a beast. He got so many re- offensive rebounds at one point that a foul was called on Fulkerson, and one of this AM guy's teammates came up and just completely pushed the, off- the AM guy in celebration because they knew the effort that he was putting in. Uh, all of the, all of the, Nebo, the best player, was the one that pushed him. They were so proud of the guy on AM. And I got his name now. It's Jonathan Aku, A K U. Just an animal. Uh, and the, they lost the game because they were out tough. No other way to put it. Tamu's not going to go to the tournament, but their last two games coming up against, both on the road at Mizzou and Tennessee, are program changing, culture type changing victories. Uh, in Mizzou, they went down to the wire. Uh, I think they won on a or they won on a missed last second heave there from Mizzou, and then going into Thompson Bowling, a notoriously difficult place to play. And I don't think this is a surprise to anyone that knows Buzz or loves Buzz like we do. But uh, those are two games that they're not going to matter this year. They will down the road. Uh, but yeah, they, I, as soon as they get some talent in there, A and M is going to be dangerous. Um, so, fuck what ha- hey, what happened to I, Eve Ponds? That was your boy. I, I still like him. He he's just having to play a role that isn't his, his skill set. You know what I mean? He, he's he can't be the alpha dog, create his own shot on offense. He's more of the an outstanding defensive player, outstanding rebounder, uh, elite athleticism, but shouldn't be the focal point of an offense. He's 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 been fine though. He's not the problem. The problem is Jordan Bowden and the fact that we're asking Jordan Bowden to do too much. I'm but glad they are. Yeah, I mean, I'm, call, I'm calling them dead, though, just because you look at their resume. They're 12-8 and eight now, 4-3 and three in the SEC. They still have to go to Kentucky. They, they're they at home at Kentucky, excuse me, but they still got to play them. They got to play at Alabama, bubble team, at Mississippi State, bubble team, just a lot of, at Auburn, at Kentucky as well. Like, they're, they're going to get run out. So unless they win the SEC tournament, that's the only opportunity to win it, which is okay. You know, the next year is supposed to be their year anyways. Um, 
but it would have been nice to sneak in as a bubble team. Yeah, it's not easy to replace a Schofield, Grant Williams, Bone, right? Bone's not there anymore. Yeah, or Gary Bertier either. You can't replace him. <laughs> no, certainly cannot. Uh, but I wanted to talk about Rick Barnes real quick. I don't know if any of you guys saw this, but Rick Barnes during this Texas A&M game is upset at a call. And a ref is walking towards him. Actually, he might have been walking towards the scorer's table to record or tell the tell the bookkeeper who the foul was on. But he's walking towards Rick Barnes, who, mind you, is stationary. He's not moving at all, standing in the exact same spot. And this ref, with such a ludicrous move that I, I truly, truly do respect it, the ref makes a beeline right to Barnes, bumps into, yet again, worth noting a stationary Barnes and looks at Barnes in such an incredulous fashion. Like, dude, did you just hit me? It was one of the most preposterous moves I've ever seen an official make one of the, I mean, this is, this is something that like a Joe West does in, in major league baseball or like Angel Hernandez, right. Or uh, Joey Crawford in the NBA. This was just such a ridiculous move for the ref to bump into Rick Barnes and then blame Rick Barnes. And so, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I had a very, very good chuckle, but if we take a step back for a second and look at that, we at some point we got to say, wait, when do these officials get penalized or reprimanded to any extent when nonsense like this happens? So, but the guy's name, it's I think it's Mike Nance is the name of the official. He's had run-ins previously with Ashton Higgins on uh, Kentucky and Herb Jones on Alabama. And... <clears throat> He, what do we take from it? I thought Rick Barnes, his, um, his press conference was about as diplomatic as you could possibly get, where he said, look, I'm not saying anything, but he would, I'm saying something about SEC, let's investigate this a little bit, because it really is just utterly preposterous. Just so much irrational arrogance from not just this guy, but a lot of college basketball refs. They are so proud of what they do. They think they are just, the, the the court is their fiefdom and everybody has to react to them. And it's just not the case. You you, you said it reminded you of something Joe West would do. I, I'm taking it a step th- further. His reaction of walking directly at someone, that someone being Rick Barnes, creating contact and then creating a reaction out of that contact. It reminds me of people that drive around filming their interactions with cops and like just pushing the cop to his boundary. I'm not talking about like cops that, you know, overuse their force or any of that stuff. I'm talking about people that are almost like entrapping and goading police officers or public figures to interact with them and filming it on their iPhones and saying, Oh, am I being detained and all this stuff, just jumping to that reaction. That's what this reminded me of. But from a college basketball perspective, this ref wanted to be outraged at something and he created his own outrage. And unfortunately for him, his fraudness was revealed. The only thing that I can think of, the only excuse for this, is this was some sort of lost bet or maybe a pregame bet amongst the, the refs. I mean, they're probably in the in one of the locker rooms getting ready, being like, God damn it, we got Texas A&M and Tennessee. I don't care about either of these teams. Neither of these teams probably care about this game right now. Let's make this a little interesting. Let's have some fun here in TBO. Get the crowd riled up. And Rick Barnes might be the perfect guy to instigate because Rick Barnes, church going man, family man. 
He's not going to say anything. Even after this, you see, you had mentioned he was diplomatic in the post-game presser. So the only explanation I can think of is one ref said to the other, all right, you got to instigate and maybe elicit a reaction from Rick Barnes in the most egregious way possible. And I would hope not. I I didn't want to talk about this, but at the end of that game, the, the officiating was just atrocious as well. I'm not going to use that as an excuse as to why Tennessee lost. There was a call on Fulkerson for setting a screen. Like the ref literally signaled the block, but as he was doing like the awesome, let me put my fist down to my hips. Everybody loves making block symbols. He also did the sidestep for a charge. So he combined the fouls where he's doing a sidestep in one direction of what a charge would be, but signaling for a block. And it honestly turned the game. Like they, they lost the game after that ball, that foul was called. I mean, charge block calls are the apex in terms of the calls for officials to make. They get off on that shit. They love charge block. Like that is just straight. It's like heroin to them. That, and I would say a referee, an NFL football referee, where it's a contested ball in the air. And they're they throw a flag on it. Both the defensive player and the offensive player are wondering, like, is it pass interference here? Is it a pass interference there? And that little moment of suspense when the ref calls a pass interference or a holding and signifies it on the team you wouldn't expect. Refs love that too. Well, you holding, know what we call that right? Defense. What do we call that? That's theater. That little bit of suspense is theater. Beautiful. Who was it? Was it Hockley who like he would call the foul, and then he would like take his hand across his body as if yeah. he's pointing to the left and then just dupe you and go all the way back across his body. And he's like, offense. It, it, it honestly boggles my mind how they're, they probably are trained on this, but just that just shows some sort. You should never think as a fan that the referee is excited about a call he's about to make. Got to be objective. Got to be neutral. Just say yeah. it in the same tone every single time. Unless it's my team, say it excited for my team. They got to they gotta get their spotlight somehow, though. Uh, let's move on then from one coach in Rick Barnes to Coach K. Yesterday, excuse me, two days ago, Coach K yelled at the Cameron Crazies for essentially what he thought was them taunting Jeff Capel. All the Crazies were saying, sit with us or something to that effect. And I actually think it was in reference to, I think their, their message or the root of their message was you shouldn't be on Pitt's bench, you know, you're a dookie, you're a Cameron crazy, just like us. Uh, come sit with us. Coach K, hearing Jeff Capel's name being chanted, completely loses it. He bit, he screamed, shut up, shut up. And then he had to be restrained by a ref. Play kept going. And then it's halftime. You think it's over. No, 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 no. Coach K then makes a beeline over to the Cameron crazies. And he just keeps saying, he's one of us. He's one of us. Uh, Coach K looks ridiculous in this. He then apologized after saying he misunderstood, but he hit you with one of those. He hit you with one of those classic Coach K apologies slash bullshit justifications, right? Like, I think earlier this year they lost a game that they. Sh- oh yeah, the uh, Stephen F. Austin game. He he made some sort of excuse, and then with this apology, he said, "Well, I'm sorry, but." Um, and he, I mean, you got to listen to this audio. I'll place it here in a little bit, but. He basically said, oh, why don't we do some more positive cheers like like defense or go do go or something like that. And if any, you know, that's it. So I apologize for the, you know, but, but you know, w- let's think of a different cheer. Let's put it like defense. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Come on, Duke. 
And it was just so cringeworthy. You could hear in his apology that he knew he was wrong. And it, he was proven to be wrong, too. I love that the fans, the Cameron Crazies, one of them uh, posted the evidence that they have. Like, they all get their, um, I don't know what they call it, but they have these little sheets about dirt to chant at certain players. I remember in high school when we played ball, like, certain fans would do that, too. They'd figure out what you can chant at the best player. And where it says dirt for Jeff Capel, it's, it says key dirt. And then underneath it, it says Pitt is coached by former Duke associate head coach Jeff Capel. Nothing bad to say here. Love you, Capel. So, like, they got the timestamps to prove that they weren't heckling him at all. But why can't you heckle previous people that have been the, in the organization? I don't think that's fair. I think Wojciechowski should be heckled if he's ever coaching there. Um, how many other Duke associate head coaches are co- head coaches? Niagara. If yeah, they but ever like, play Duke. No, but like all the traditional ones, like Johnny Dawkins, he's gone. Um, I don't think Johnny Dawkins is coaching anymore, right? Actually, or wasn't he no, just coaching? Yeah, UCF. South Florida. Yeah, UCF, Central Florida. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, that team stinks too, but. They always have that Zion layup last year. Yeah. Should have won true. that game. But I mean, this is just an absurd approach here from Coach K. And again, a half ass apology afterwards. It's just, it didn't do it for me. But I do think it's hilarious on both ends because the Cameron Crazies, in my opinion, are the biggest squids in college basketball. Everyone praises them for their creativity and how they give Duke a home court advantage. I've always said Duke has a home court advantage because they play in like my living room, such a small arena. But I mean, look, Cameron Crazies, they have this reputation, hug for them. But when Coach K went over over to them and reprimanded them, they looked like a bunch of scared school children. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, Coach K, I, not me, but my dad pays for these tickets. And Kornheiser actually made a great point. He said, I don't even sleep in the fucking dorms. I sleep in these tents to come see you. All right. You're not my dad. You can't scold me like this. But yet every single one of them had this terrified look on their face as if like on Friday when the substitute teacher was there, they acted up and created such a ruckus. And then the regular teacher came in on Monday and completely killed them. I mean, it was just such a surreal look on all of their faces. I don't agree with that at all. Coach K, when you built, you've literally built the program and built the mystique of that school when he took the job there in the 80s. That's almost freaking 30 plus years ago at this point. I don't know the exact year that he took the job. I'm doing it in my head, but he can do whatever the hell he wants. People go to that school because they love Duke basketball. That they, they, they are on the national rate national radar because of Coach K. So if he wants to scold you, then he should be able to scold you. Because the reason your tiny little gym that you're making fun of right now, the reason it's so packed and is the reason that the people are sleeping out in the tents before is because of what he built. Fine, scold him, but have a spine. Like, look, to, I'm not ex- asking you to yell back at Coach K or anything like that, although that would be theater as well. I'm saying, like, go get a drink or look at your phone. Just completely disregard the guy. It was literally as if school was in session, the bell rang, and if these guys weren't locked on Coach K, they were going to get slapped on the wrist with a which is how, Which is how it's it should be because those petrifying. Under- no, but they understand what he's built. They react like that to someone of that type of authority. He's a god. Have a backbone. Isn't Duke supposed to be the young leaders of America? Make, have a stand. Make a stand. 
No. That's all I'm asking the the Dukies to do. Uh, although there is a, a somewhat serious aspect to this that some people have dove into. A lot of people have acknowledged that Coach K was wrong, but they were saying that he very understandably so may have been affected by the passing of Kobe Bryant. And we're actually going to discuss our thoughts on Kobe here. Uh, but before we do that, a quick message from the Barnburner Podcast Network. All right, Shark. So this past Sunday, news broke. Kobe Bryant passed away in a tragic, tragic helicopter crash. Obviously, his daughter Gianna as well, uh, as, well as seven others uh, in that terrible crash. I guess a lot of people in a lot of news media, and we're not huge, we're not ESPN, we're not Titus and Tate, we understand that, but all of us, what made Kobe so great is that he touched and had an impact on the everyman. So you've been close to the professional game. Obviously, you have connections that have gotten you very close to the Celtics, and you've seen Kobe Bryant play. You've seen him lose a title on the in, in the garden. Uh, I'd like to know your thoughts, good or bad, and experience personally or just watching from afar on Kobe Bryant? Always good. I, I mean, I know people aren't necessarily coming to us for us to give a reaction or a story or uh, to even, you know, provide our commentary on, but there's nothing we can really say that people that were closer to him haven't already said. All I can say is for someone in our age bracket, late twenties, early thirties, um, growing up on the East coast, rooting for East coast teams, Kobe Bryant was built up to be the perfect villain, right? You're supposed to hate him. He won so many times. He was cocky. He was arrogant. He was so freaking good. And you root, you're naturally rooted against his teams, especially if you're a Celtics fan like I was, and you were playing him in big games. Yet for some freaking reason, there was always just like this deep like that you had for him. And a deep, I don't even want to call it respect because, of course, you're going to respect the guy, but just a appreciation for how good he was, for how unique he was, and how much of just like an asshole he was to his teammates, but in the right sort of way, just like a calculated, nice asshole. And that is just something that's so unique in the game and the way that he's played. I, I, I know from – I remember when I was in third grade, I did a project. I got like a little biography book to write, and I did it on Kobe Bryant. I had to make one of those freaking like dioramas or some cool little – picture thing put it all together and i learned everything about him i learned about lower marion high i learned that his dad was you know a former nba player i learned about his time in italy and like he was just a very interesting guy and then he went on to just be the just a vicious vicious player in the league that you couldn't help but just look up to and want want to emulate so when this happened it's one of those things. It's like, you, you're going to know exactly where you, where you were. You're going to know exactly when it happened. It's probably the most shocking celebrity death that I've ever seen. I'd agree with that. Do you have a favorite moment of Kobe's? Uh, I always go back to, I think it was the jumper that he hit on the elbow. It might've been against, um, I think it was against Phoenix. Like, overtime game, clock completely winding down. Like, a pure, true buzzer beater in overtime in the playoffs. Clock is not winding. We're not going to the monitor. We're not going to go look at whether or not he released from his fingertips in time. Just a true fadeaway 
buzzer beater and one of those patented Kobe shots where it's like he's fading away. The guy guarding him has got three inches and, you know, the wingspan of a, a monster covering him. But Kobe somehow is able to get the, the his shot off just by a fingertip and it just lands perfectly in the net. Like one of those vintage Kobe shots that he's been doing for years. But that one going in and there's the reaction in the Staples Center because it didn't. It, you just can't help but look at it and say this guy is incredible. And his game is just as close to Michael Jordan as you can possibly imagine. I think my favorite moment, I have two. One that a lot of people will use, and it's perfectly understandable. In my opinion, his 60-point game is very last game in the NBA because you knew he was going to go out chucking. That was an obvious given. But to actually get those 60 points, and it wasn't against some slapdick team. That Utah Jazz team was fighting for a playoff spot. And I, I think they had something to gain from that win. So it's not like Utah laid down either. So to go out, score 60 on that night in his last game and put on a show for everyone that was there. Kanye was there. Shaq was there. Snoop, every single celebrity, A-list celebrity that you can think of was treated to an absolute show. And Kobe knew the moment. And for him to go out and drop 60 was something else. In addition to that, I think this shot gets overlooked. And I truly, truly believe it is one of the most difficult shots in NBA history. It's the shot against the Portland Trailblazers. Kobe's feet, let's just look at it like this if we're on a compass. Kobe's feet are pretty much pointed like northward or maybe northwest, and the hoop is complete, is due west. And he cannot dribble. He's picked up his dribble, and he's got a man all over him. Like, I'm telling, right up his ass. And Kobe somehow wiggles his way out of that situation Feet, again, not set towards the hoop, and he drains a three-pointer. Truly one of the greatest shots. And most. I mean, you talk degree of difficulty, that's it right there. Those are the two biggest moments for Kobe. Well, aside from his, you know, five rings as well, you know what I mean? Like, he, sure. The thing that makes him so awesome is he, he is the picture of – cockiness and arrogance but backing it up entirely and not giving a damn what people think about him which you know all of us have different personalities some of us are like i myself i I can definitely be arrogant and a cocky guy even with dumb little tweets about like stupid college basketball teams but i definitely have that as a personality trait in my life and a lot of it is just unjustified. And Kobe kind of just had that attitude throughout his life, yet he just backed it up. There's no better feeling than backing up one of your points and proving yourself. And his whole career and his whole lifespan and even what he was doing after leaving the game, he's been proving himself, whether it's in like like he won an Oscar or doing it on the court. Uh, and he, he he's just so – I know this is kind of getting to a ramble point here, but – Unique and um, not what you would expect out of an elite NBA player. He really isn't. Like, he's kind of a renaissance man. We've all seen the clips of him speaking different languages, his interests, um, and just his, his humor as well. Very unique and amazing, amazing player and human being. Yeah. I think on Sunday when the news broke, I, I was – I. Honestly, couldn't believe it. I truly thought when I saw the TMZ report, and you know me, not a tweeting man, just a man who tweets. But I was on Twitter quite a bit, and I see this news coming in. And I'm saying to myself, this is definitely a hoax. It has to be a hoax. But there was also a 
decent part of a decent amount of me that was like, well, this is TMZ. Recently they get these things right and they're hundred percent airtight. So that was the scariest part. And then obviously in the aftermath of this, you would mention it. This is the biggest celebrity death. I'd agree. So for generations older than us, Michael Jackson passing away, Prince passing away, those two had an incredible imprint on those generations and maybe even people in our generation. I can't speak for them, but for me personally, watching Kobe pretty much throughout his entire career, right? There's an age in which you start getting involved and start watching sports religiously, right? And that's around eight, eight or nine, I would say. Kobe came into the league in 96, 97. And I think every, he, he became a household name when they beat the Sixers in, for his first title. Or it might have been the Pacers for his first title. I forget. But when he won that for those first series of titles, uh, everyone knew who Kobe Bryant was. People knew who Shaq was even during the Magic years. But this was Kobe's time to really come to the forefront. So for us to have seen an entire career trajectory, then see him post-NBA, see him winning those Oscars, see him with uh, Gigi and uh, flourishing with his other daughters, and then for him to be gone is the toughest part. And sort of piggyback on that, I think what a lot of people are feeling, especially those close to him, and I can only speculate, is that they knew how much he had left in the tank. 41 years old for anyone is super young. But Kobe could have done it could have been just as great off the court in turn and he was to for most extents in his limited time uh, as he was on the court and i think a lot of people know that in death you have to move on but i don't think people want to move on in this scenario it's almost as if they don't want kobe to think that they're forgetting about him they have to move on but this is just still so raw uh, for a lot of people and you saw that with silver postponing the clippers lakers game to friday yeah, you know, with tragedies like this, there there is always kind of a, a, a takeaway or a legacy from it. Obviously, the mourning aspect, everyone being so shocked about this happening, uh, the heartbreaking pieces, you know, he does have so much left. And I, I, I get to thinking about what he's had left. I keep going back to, you know, this guy worked his ass off from when he was an adolescent until he was 41 years old. Um, or 40 years old when, whenever he retired. Um, he worked his ass off to be the very best at his craft. And that was alienating teammates and, you know, losing friendships, whatever it is, like just working so hard to get to one point. And he achieved this incredible career, uh, decorated, decorated career, one of the best players to ever play the game. And now he's on, he's on like the back half of his life here where he can reap the benefits of everything that he worked so hard for. And to have it be lost and he can't enjoy what, you know, we all work hard in our own professional lives. We all want to get to retirement, right? That's why we all contribute to 401ks and we want to plan for the back nine and do all that stuff. And not only did he do all of it, but he just excelled at the very top of his profession and to have it just be taken away so shockingly in such a tragic way is what I keep thinking about. And I think that's probably where a lot of people are falling on it as well, because he is missing out on reaping his, the fruits of his labor, you know, and for his family as well. And when I, when I go, I, I touched, I talked a little bit about the legacy of these things. Like, you know, every, anytime there's a national tragedy, whether it's a, a school shooting or something that goes on, people rush to have the takeaway from it. Uh, whether it's gun control in that scenario or, when it's a scenario like this, people just say, you know, live in the moment, appreciate what you have. Don't get 
bogged down by small petty things. Uh, you know, squash beefs where you can and appreciate the people in your life because something like this can happen. It happens on smaller scales every single day in the hundreds of thousands. So that is an incredible takeaway and an incredible legacy to, for all of us to see. And we've, we've seen it from Shaq and Charles and uh, everyone talking on TNT and the coverage has been phenomenal. The one I go back to is the one that Jay Williams did literally moments after it happened on ESPN. That one will, will get me choked up looking at forever because he, escaped death when he had his his accident his career almost ended just like that and for him to get up there and say in a much more eloquent way than i'm saying right now that you shouldn't be concerned about small things that aren't going to define your life care about people that as they're here and don't worry about it that, that's a great lesson for all of us to have that's true it, it does dovetail nicely into my next and pretty much final point but Watching, you had mentioned Shaq, watching the TNT crew. I think that's the one that hit me like an absolute Mack truck. Seeing this big, jolly giant, and we see him on every single commercial. We see him laughing, throwing jokes at Chuck, throwing jokes on the set. It's obvious to say, oh, I've never seen this athlete cry or this celebrity cry because we don't know them personally. But never in a million years did I think we'd be in a scenario where we would publicly see Shaquille O'Neal cry. And so seeing him getting choked up and then right next to him, Jerry West getting choked up as well. Uh, those two really hit me, hit me hard. And then an Instagram post from Lamar Odom was another one that I think was, was so brutal to read. He basically said when he was in the hospital, uh, he, if God came to him and wanted and said, I'd spare Kobe and take you, I'd do it in a second. And that's those, those three figures, uh, were and three of them very close to Kobe. Were it was gut wrenching. It, it truly was, and this whole thing, uh, absolutely uh, a tragedy, in in every sense of the word. It makes you think that you know, you know. I, I don't know. I, 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 it's hard for me to even come up with more thoughts thinking about it because when I do it, it just completely changes my mood, and it, it's hard to be on a podcast talking about you know freaking butler and uri for a while and then get get brought back down but i imagine it's not the way to live so continue to be lighthearted. continue to care about the things that you care about and enjoy them so enjoy march madness for guys like us right no better words to end the program on thank you for listening as always we will see you next time here on theater in college hoops and the other forward for the final time, number 24 on the floor, 6-6, five-time world champion, Kobe.